Today on Heart and Mind, we continue our study of the parables, those enigmatic short stories Jesus told his followers. They're really riddles, to be honest. The church down through the ages has loved these stories, but really, they're supposed to leave us scratching their head. They're not like Aesop's fables. So let's get started, and don't forget to stay tuned at the end for another Ask a Scholar question that was submitted earlier this week. As kind of a refresher, last time we talked about how the word parable itself is a Greek word, that it means to cast alongside, which just really tells us that it's the language of comparison. So whatever the story is that we're looking at in a parable, it's meant to be a comparison with the reign of God or the God movement, lots of ways to translate that little phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Probably the one that I, I find the most meaningful to me and maybe to most people is the God movement. What exactly is God doing among us? What is this God movement? So Jesus gives us these riddles to kind of help us understand it. They're collected and arranged by the first three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are no parables in John. And they, some generation or so later, had heard these stories that had been passed down, and they collected them and arranged them to kind of suit their purposes. And in all, there's about 40 of them. And a good number of them come with what's called a nimshal, which we talked about last time, a kind of a clue. So, for example, one of the parables that we'll look at this time is um, sometimes called Two Men Went Up to Pray. But here's how it starts. This is from Luke 18. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. Well, if you start a riddle with the answer... It's not much of a riddle. It's kind of like starting a joke with the punchline. So most scholars say that that kind of nimshaw, that kind of clue, is probably more the writer of the gospel than it is Jesus. He probably wouldn't have given a clue in, uh, before he told the riddle. So what we're going to do is we're going to play, and I, I'm using this word intentionally, we're going to play with two parables. Most of the time, scholars don't call it play. Most of the time, scholars call it, we're going to interpret, we're going to exegete, we're going to study uh, a parable. But I think play might be the right word, considering the playful nature of these riddles. It's almost like Jesus, when he tells the riddles, is winking at us. A couple of things before we look at these two parables. One, just a kind of acknowledgement that we are always... No matter what we're reading in the Bible, we are always at least one kind of distance away from the text. So if you flip open a Bible at random, we are already at a distance in terms of language, because while you'll flip open an English Bible, the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. So we're already at a distance in language, we're in a distance in history, and geography, and customs, that's a, a distance that is always there. And so most people find that when they're reading the Bible, that's a hard distance to overcome. Not, not insurmountable, but it's there. But with the parables, and I would sort of add here, as well as the book of Revelation, there is another kind of distance. The first one's still in place, but there's another one, and that is that inherent within the form of parable itself is distance, because it's a riddle kind of like, not exactly, but kind of like the code language and imagery that the book of Revelation reads. 
So when we are playing with the parables, we have to remind ourselves of their customs and their history and the language and so forth, but we also have to know that we're in for a challenge that's going to um, make us work our brains. I mentioned last time C.H. Dodd's definition of parables. He was a British scholar, and in the 1960s, early 1960s, he, he penned this definition. It's a long one, but here it is. At its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness, and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application. Really, just two pieces of that are crucial. One is that it's drawn from nature or common life, and the other is it's got some arresting characteristics, vividness, strangeness, something that trips us up. But here's where you got to remember something. Remember the two distances that we feel. When you read a parable, you have to look for what would have made perfect sense in that day in their customs. So you don't ask a 21st century question, but a 1st century question. Then you have to read, okay, now that I've figured out what made perfect sense in the 1st century, what would have been the bizarre twist? So in a parable, we have to read for both. So <clears throat> here is the parable from Luke 18 without the clue up front and without the summary kind of interpretation statement afterwards. Just listen to the parable itself. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So you start to ask yourself questions like, well, what would have made perfect sense and what's bizarre? One way to do this is to just simply work through it a little bit at a time, to kind of break it down into pieces. Scholars call this doing a, a close reading, slowing down, paying attention to every kind of phrase and important word. You notice that the parable begins by two people going up to the temple. That's because not only is the temple at some elevation, being in Jerusalem, but up is symbolic. You always go up when you go to the temple. So they're going up. They go up into the presence of God who lives in the temple. One of them is a Pharisee. Now, a lot of people's Sunday school education failed them at this point. They think Pharisee, hypocrite. And that is way, way off the mark. In the first century, people thought Pharisee, ah, dedicated religious person. Pharisees were not religious professionals. They weren't priests who worked in the temple. They were lay people. They had regular jobs, but they were very dedicated to keeping the commandments of God, to studying the scriptures. And there were two parties, two schools of thought within Pharisees. 
One was called Hillel. It was named after a, a rabbi, Hillel, who lived about 100 years before Jesus. And the other, the school of Shammai. And again, contemporary with Hillel. Shammai was the stricter of the two. Hillel was the more progressive of the two. But regardless, both are dedicated. For the most part, when you read the New Testament, the Pharisees that come on stage are followers of Shammai. So, yeah, this Pharisee's prayer seems a little bit self-serving, but you have to remember, even the more conservative of the two parties were still dedicated. So first century people reading about a Pharisee going up to pray, Hillel or Shammai, they know this is a dedicated person. They love God. So then you hear about the second person, a tax collector, or more accurately, a toll collector. In the first century, there was only one thing people knew about toll collectors. They cheated and worked for Rome doing it. In other words, these were Jewish citizens who, for various reasons, probably mostly economic, and they could have good motives, they were trying to survive, or they could have sinister motives, but they were people who betrayed their fellow Jews, went to work for Rome, and collected these tolls and taxes. So when one reads a parable in which a Pharisee, good guy, and a toll collector, bad guy, go up to pray, you pretty much know how it's going to go. And you're not really disappointed. Or are you? A lot of people read the Pharisee's prayer where he says, God, I thank you, as hypocrisy. That how dare he look down on the toll collector? Who does he think he is? Well, that's one way to read it. But there's another way to read it. And that is, what if this is his testimony of gratitude to God? What if instead of an arrogant kind of tone, he says, God, thank you so much that you have made my life what it is. I'm not like a thief. I'm not like a rogue. I'm not like this tax collector. It's hard to say, but that's part of what a riddle is. That's part of the work of interpreting a parable. The Pharisee stands and he prays. The little phrase, though, by himself is not easy to translate. Some people suggest that in the Greek it says he prays to himself, and others say he prays about himself, that, he, that he's praying to himself instead of praying to God. And that's possible to be translated that way, so that one's a little bit trickier. We know that the toll collector stands far off. He won't even look up. He beats his chest because that's the kind of posture of lament and sorrow. The Pharisee's testimony, by the way, or his at least semi-testimony, some people suggest that maybe it's not as phony as it sounds because actually the wording comes pretty much from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. But we know that the toll collector begs for mercy. So, okay, we ask ourselves, all right, well, what's normal in here and what's bizarre and what will happen? Well, one clue comes from the introductory nimshal. Remember, that's a clue. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves and had contempt for others. So, at least in Luke's telling of it, he aims this at people like the Pharisees. And he concludes it with a nimshal as well. 
Jesus says, I tell you, this one, the toll collector, went to his home justified rather than the other. Now that would have been shocking in the first century. A toll collector, the bad guy, goes home justified, right with God, and this Pharisee who's the good guy doesn't? I read just recently that in the Eastern Orthodox Church, three weeks prior to Ash Wednesday, they have a Sunday in their church. It was just, you know, an amazing kind of discovery, but they call it the Sunday of the publican and Pharisee. Publican is another name for the toll collector. They have a Sunday dedicated to this parable. And it's three weeks prior to Ash Wednesday as a preparation for the season of humility and repentance. But I wonder if we have, in some ways, domesticated the parable. And here's why I say that. Some have suggested that, yeah, when you read a parable, there should be a kind of, huh, I never really thought of it that way before. And that would be true if you heard that the bad guy, a toll collector, was somehow made right with God and the Pharisee wasn't. That would be a kind of, huh, never really thought about that. Sort of a hand on your chin, scratching your, your head kind of thing. But others have said that may not be a sufficient read of parables. Parables push us to a level that might be better for paraphrased, oh my God, I never imagined. In that case, we have to ask ourselves, what is absolutely shocking and earth-shattering in the parable? So, think about the last phrase. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. In Greek, the little word rather is spelled P-A-R, par. If you think back to the first episode on why Jesus spoke in parables, we talked about how the Greek word parable comes from a compound word. It, it, bole, the end of it, is to throw or to cast. But the par in parable up front is this par here, and it means alongside. Kind of like a paralegal works alongside a lawyer. If that's the case, this parable ends with, I tell you, this one, the toll collector, went down to his home justified alongside the other. What if both men, one stereotypically good, one stereotypically bad, go home justified? It makes sense in the scheme of Judaism. Jews don't question whether they have salvation and are made right with God. That's a given. This is the nature of God, to save persons. But what if God and God's grace extends to all, the proud and the humble, the so-called good and bad? This would fit with Luke's scheme. So it's an interesting parable to play with. The second one we're going to look at is from Matthew 13. It's one little verse, verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. And that's it. <laughs> if you open your Bible to Matthew 13 and you read the verses before it and you read the verses after it, you don't get any nimshaw. You don't get any clues. It's just the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Any questions? <laughs> 
I can imagine the disciples raising their hands. Yes, I have lots of questions. Or did they? What in this little parable would be very normal kind of scene in the first century and what would have been absolutely shocking? Well, let's just kind of break it down. The fact that bread features in this parable is not very surprising. Bread is everywhere in the first century, and it turns out it's everywhere in the Gospel of Matthew. Here's just a few examples. Matthew says Jesus is born in Bethlehem. That's Hebrew for house of bread. Bethlehem, the house of bread. When Jesus goes into the wilderness before his baptism, the devil tempts him to turn stones into bread. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, what we call the Lord's Prayer, he says, give us this day our daily bread. He feeds the multitudes two times in the Gospel of Matthew, thousands of people with a few loaves of bread. And of course, in the upper room, he has that last supper with bread. Bread is everywhere in the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew, and in the first century. So it's not exceptional that we would see someone baking bread, and the fact that it's a woman, that would have been very much the custom. Women would have every day baked bread for their family. But having a woman featured in a parable is a little bit unusual. It might signal something. Let's continue. Notice that she... <clears throat> mixes this yeast in with three measures of flour. Now that's where the first distance, the distance in customs and language and so forth, kicks in. We can ask ourselves the second question, is this normal or abnormal, after we know something about the first question. How much is three measures? If you watch cooking shows, you might think, oh, well, this is three cups of flour. That's a, you know, decent size. But actually it turns out to be 50 to 60 pounds of flour. That would be absurd. A woman baking bread? Yes, makes sense. 50 to 60 pounds in a small village? No. This is the, the bizarre characteristic. This is the thing that says, oh, something, something's going on. But it turns out more is going on than just a lot of bread. The exact meaning here of three measures is in Hebrew called an ephah. And it turns out to be a precise amount. We estimate it to be 50 to 60 pounds, but what I mean is that in the Old Testament, this amount of bread is mentioned several times, and it appears to be what might be labeled a divine amount of bread. Like, for instance, when Abraham and Sarah have yet to have kids and... The angels, the three angels come to visit them and they tell Sarah she's going to have a baby and they'll come back in a year and she'll have a child. And she laughs. And well, when Abraham sees them coming, he says, please let me offer you some bread. And he tells Sarah, go in and make some bread. Except he doesn't say just make some bread. He uses the ephah. This, this means that for three people, Sarah's supposed to make 50, 60 pounds of bread. Now, I don't take that literally that she did. I think that's the figure of speech that's used in the story, and it symbolizes something. Or Gideon, when he offers bread to God over in Judges, it's 50 to 60 pounds, an ephah. Or Hannah, when she learns that she's going to have a child, she offers an ephah of bread to God. It seems to be 
a kind of divine amount. This woman is not just baking a lot of bread. She's baking a divine amount. But now the plot thickens. The text says that she took and mixed in this yeast with the dough, right? With the flour. And again, you could sort of picture those cooking shows. But mixed is not an accurate translation. It is, but listen to the Greek word, encrypto, encrypted. She hid it. She hid this leaven inside of the dough. And we might as well come clean. While the text says yeast and how it ends with until all of it was leavened, the really word here is leaven. Now, a lot of us in the first in the 21st century would picture Fleshman's packets of yeast that you buy at the store or a little jar, but that's not the image here. In the first century, the only way bread was leavened was to take a piece of moldy bread, just a little scrap, put it into the dough, and it would do its magic. It would spread the fermentation. So, <clears throat> this woman hides a piece of this molded dough inside a divine amount of bread. But then we have to put on our thinking caps and remember the role of leaven. This is debated among scholars, at least part of it is. All of us agree <clears throat> that in the Old Testament, there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's part of Passover. If you don't remember the story, the Jews were slaves in Egypt. They asked God to deliver them, God sent plagues. The last plague God sent upon the Egyptians, trying to get the Pharaoh to let the people go, was called the Passover. The angel of death would come and would slaughter the child of the Egyptians, but would pass over the house of the Jews if they put blood on the doorpost. It was to be a sign. Well, in order for this to work, God said that they should eat this meal the night before with unleavened bread and, I'm paraphrasing here, and with their suitcases packed. They should be ready to go because Pharaoh is going to let you go this time. you got to get going. The idea then was that there's no time for the bread to rise. Here's the debated part. Over time, leaven comes to represent not just a haste, but also evil. Even in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So over time, this comes to represent a symbol of kind of impurity, which makes this a really interesting parable. Not only is this woman baking bread, and a lot of it, and a divine amount, but she's taken something that in many ways represents impurity and put it in there. Well, <clears throat> lots of possibilities on interpreting this one. Some people talk about the idea of from little to big, which is a common theme in some of the parables. Or the influence theory, how just this little thing can make a big influence. I'm not terribly convinced by those. I wonder if the woman might be a figure of God baking enough bread for all of her children, even the so-called unclean. Hard to know. I mean, it's a parable, right? A riddle. 
I got one more task for us. Why does Jesus speak in parables? But let me ask another question to kind of get at that one. And this one is a weird question. I'll just tell you that up front. Uh, you might even consider it a kind of parable itself. Do you think Jesus needed tubes in his ears as a toddler? Okay, I warned you, it's a weird question. All of our grandchildren are going through that stage of needing to get tubes, trying to keep the ear infections away and that kind of thing. But there's a reason I ask that. Picture Jesus as a two-year-old. Was he so divine, son of God, that humanity being human was a bother? Was he bored as a toddler? Was he sitting there in the crib thinking, oh my gosh, I can't wait to grow up and feed the multitude someday to walk on water, but here I am stuck in this crib. You know, when I was a kid, I remember the cartoons, they pictured Superman when he was a toddler, he could raise his crib with one hand. The question, though, really is a poignant one. At what point in Jesus' life does he recognize his identity? Does he know it as a toddler? Probably not. But when does he know? And how does he know? Some have suggested that a measure of clarity comes at his baptism when the heavenly voice declares him to be God's son. But what might this say about speaking in parables? J. Ramsey Michaels is a scholar who has a book called Servant and Son, and he draws on a, a term C.S. Lewis uses to distinguish between two kinds of metaphors. There's a teacher's metaphor and a pupil's metaphor. A teacher's metaphor is the kind where the teacher knows what he or she wants to say, but gives us an illustration to help us understand what she or he is teaching. But a pupil's metaphor is the kind where the teacher puts a story forward and helps others and the teller wrestle with the truth. Michaels suggests, what if Jesus is sharing stories, quote, his father told him, trying to figure out the God movement? What if at his baptism, he does start to recognize, but wrestles with it his whole life? Who am I? What, what is the meaning of this? What if the parables are a way for Jesus to wrestle with his own identity? Some of us will be more comfortable with that kind of questioning than others. I noticed over the years that in some Christian traditions, denominations, so forth, there is a kind of gravitating towards certainty. We want things to be certain. Uh, there's a tendency in Western Christianity toward binary thinking. There's either this or that. Which one is right? But in Eastern Christianity, that's the Orthodox branch, and along with Judaism, there's much more comfort with tension, a dialectic, this and that. I've also noticed that in many Christian traditions, there's a kind of gravitation toward Paul because of the directness of Paul's letters versus the Gospels, and especially the parables, which are narrative and therefore open-ended. So, it's harder to know. This much I know. It is a whole lot easier to debunk anybody else's interpretation of parables than it is to come up with your own.
I've read lots of books on the parables. And almost all of them are really good at saying, well, here's what's wrong with this one, and here's what's wrong with that one. But it's a lot harder to suggest what they really are. And maybe that's the way it should be. I guess, for me, I think about Anselm, one of the fathers of the church, who had this motto called faith-seeking understanding. It's one of the things I like most about Anselm. A lot of his theology I'm not as fond of. But faith-seeking understanding. That seems to me to be a good way of approaching the parables. You start with a faith stance. There must be something in here about the God movement. But you don't know what it is, and so you seek to understand it. But the seeking will be an ongoing task. You don't really arrive. This faith-seeking understanding is not only good for parables, but approaching God, it's even a good way of approaching Christian faith overall. So, the Ask a Scholar question today comes from a friend who decided to read the Bible through in, in one year. There are plans, if you don't know, for doing so. Some better than others, at least in terms of keeping readers interested. And you could do an internet search and find several of these plans. But my friend asked, what if the pace is such that one manages to finish but didn't really understand? So this makes me think of a passage in Acts that you would read if you were reading through the Bible. It's a lesser-known story about a servant in the early church named Philip. It's over there in Acts chapter 10 if you want to look it up. Philip encounters a man seated in a chariot reading from the book of Isaiah. And there's a whole lot more to this. But he asks the guy, Do you understand what you're reading? And he says, How can I unless someone guides me? As a person who taught in the seminary for 30 years and now in a church setting, this is somewhat encouraging. Churchgoers need people like me and so many others to help guide them. But on the other hand, I have a, a little hesitation about this. One of the things to emerge out of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago now was the idea that anyone can read the Bible for themselves. It's called the priesthood of all believers. Anyone has access. So here's the way I've been thinking about it. What if there's a middle ground here, a so-called third way? And that is that we celebrate how anyone can read for themselves, pray, meditate on the passages, and trust God's Spirit to say something. But that doesn't have to negate the role of educated clergy to serve as guides. Sometimes just one little insight into the translation issues can make a difference, like that little Greek word par. So, <clears throat> if you're reading through the Bible this year, the whole thing, or just parts, feel free to submit a question. Send me an email, mikeg at cccc.org. That's MikeG at 4CsKC.org. Until next time, thanks for joining us on Heart and Mind.